Hey, everybody. So just we're going to get started in a minute or two. I'm just going to, if there's a last run for beer or wine or tostadas, feel free. And then panelists can take their seats. I'll kind of give my spiel uh, while everyone gets settled. Um, but my name, my name is Vanessa Richardson. Actually, I'm going to ask one of you in the back if you could close the door. Because just heads up, we're recording for a podcast. So I want to make sure the audio is really good. So my name is Vanessa Richardson. I'm director of an organization called California Groundbreakers, filing for a 501c3. And um, this is, I think, our eighth event since June. And this is actually the first of four panels on housing. I've kind of titled it California's Crazy Housing Market. And this is a kind of a personal interest for me because I bought a house in November here in Sacramento, but it was, I'm a first time home buyer. Uh, I had to get help from my parents. And then we had to navigate through what I thought was very interesting situations where the first house, um, you know, I started at three and then I realized, okay, I may have to go to 350 to get what I want. And then that there were houses that were above that. Okay, let's stretch. And then one house was looked lovely, but it needed $50,000 in repairs, so that fell through. But then it sold anyway for $385,000. And then a second house, there was a bidding war, and I wrote letters like, I'm so great, and this is why, and it didn't work. And then the third time was the charm, but it, there were nine offers. The highest one was 37.5 over asking. And honestly, the only reason we got it was because it was cash. And so I just thought, I know this is not the Bay Area, but it seems pretty, it seems pretty high speed for me. And then of course, you know, like you guys probably read what I do, the B in the business journal, and you see how Sacramento is the, you know, fourth, seventh, tenth hottest um, market in the, for housing in the, in the nation. And then rental and prices, you know, year over year increases, they're up there as well. But then you also have the situation of affordable housing and now the mayors, mayor and city council are debating, I think right now, in terms of who for housing for homeless, you know, um, section eight, who gets priority. And then there's the gentrification issue. And then I'm sure because it's a government town, a lot of you heard about CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, which is an acronym that I think many land developers just uh, drives them crazy because it does affect uh, land usage, where we build, how much it's going to cost, and so forth. So this just is one of many, an overview in, in many ways of, of what we're looking at as potential home buyers, as renters, as sellers, home sellers, real estate investors. And so this is the first one. The next one is going to be on affordable housing. Um, I'm going to, it's going to be in late February. I'm discussing venues with certain people, so I can't announce it yet, but it is definitely be late February, then March will be gentrification and CEQA. So just briefly about the organization, um, it is a civic engagement organization. This is a typical event where we have a great panel of people who um, are doing really interesting and innovative things in a specific area, and they come to talk about what they're doing, and then you, the audience, get to go to the mic um, and ask them questions or challenge them or offer suggestions. And then we do this over beer, wine, 
of water for those who don't partake, just to have it a little more relaxed and formal and after work. And I grew up here and I came back uh, after a couple, well, 20 years, and I just saw that uh, after being in San Francisco where they had events like this all the time, why don't we have something like this on a regular basis too? Because there's a lot of stuff going on, capital, housing, arts, um, everything. So trying to run the gamut. I do have a, if you have signed up for the email news list, I'm putting together the email newsletter this week. I'm going to start sending out event postings. I also welcome suggestions in terms of panel topics, panelists, great venues like this one at Clara. Um, and then also the goal is to have the conversation continue after the mic ends where you can mingle with the panelists or if you want to volunteer for one of the organizations or if you want, you have funding and you can help one of the, or you want a partner. So the goal is to kind of like get the conversation started but not just end tonight. Uh, special thanks, I want to give thanks to uh, Cl Clara, Megan Weigert, who runs this, has offered um, the space and she, I've been switching dates so much so she's been very uh, gracious and not penalizing me, so I appreciate that. I also want to thank um, our awesome audio guy, Caleb, <laughs> up there, who's doing the mic check uh, and who will be helping me with the podcast. Of course, the people who are here as volunteers and advisory board members, Rachel Smith, Nicole Grant, uh, Scott Eggert, Jennifer Rindall, Tiffany Sharp. Um, those are the ones that really helped me with this event, so I very much appreciate that. And then, of course, to you all for coming. Uh, I know you're probably like, what's this California Groundbreakers and what are they talking about? So thank you for taking a chance. And of course, to you guys for coming. And with that, we're going to get started. Um, the format is basically an hour, well, 45 minutes to an hour of questions. I kind of gauge your faces to see how interested or how you know tired you're getting. And then I'll let you know in advance. Let's start lining up at the mic for questions and then you know you can feel free. Of course, you know, succinct is always better rather than a long rambling thing, but uh, just keep that in mind, it is for podcast recording. And then I always introduce the panelists by having them introduce themselves because they know themselves better than anybody else, certainly me. But I always also like to ask a little personal note about everybody so we all get a sense of who you are, <laughs> especially when it comes to um, your role in the, in the housing market. So I'm gonna start on my left and ask you your name your workplace, your role there, and then just, I wanted to see what's your example um, of being in this housing market, a crazy, you know, crazy example that you experience either in a professional level, a personal level, or both. So what's the most crazy time you've had in the housing market during your personal or professional experience with it? Thank you for inviting me. My name is Mike Paris. I'm the founder and president of Black Pine Communities. Uh, a very brief overview of my background. I've been in the, in the production for sale market rate housing business for almost 32 years. Uh, I've done a number of startups and divisions. I've worked nationally uh, out of a national firm out of Chicago and have been operating in about 28 different markets throughout the country. Um, I feel Fortunate to have the opportunity because I have seen different housing styles and choices in my career and some of those experiences I brought back to Sacramento and when I founded Black Pine it was really 
on the on the uh, the heels of the downturn in the in the industry. The the firm I work for did not make it out of the cycle, and and I had to find another career. And I just gravitated back to my passion, which was building homes and providing. Uh, places for people to raise their families. I just, it, it's a very strong passion in my background and I follow it very clearly. Um, we've been in Sacramento here for, uh, since 2013 when we first launched the community in Roseville. We're currently building in Curtis Park Village and we also have a project called the Creamery in downtown Sacramento. Uh, we recently acquired another community up in Folsom. Part of our background as a home builder is we've got a niche where we like to go into boutique or non-master plan communities and find ways that we can introduce good architecture, be a little more relevant with our style and design and, and our brand value. Um, crazy times in the business. I, I think probably is the experience of the financial meltdown that we experienced, not just for home building, but it was a very, very deep uh, thaw that happened in the industry and the financial markets that impacted millions of people's lives and their careers. So just coming out of that and the lessons we learned has probably been the biggest roller coaster I could attribute to what I do. Tom. Uh, my name is Tom Bannon. I'm the CEO of the California Apartment Association. Uh, the association is a statewide trade association with about 18,000 members. Um, our members are everybody from a single family rental investor all the way up to the largest real estate investment trusts in the country. Uh, we do a variety of things. Um, a number of our members develop the apartments that are going up around the state. We hope they build more. Um, we also provide education to our members in terms of compliance. Um, we push very, very hard for our members to abide by a code of ethics. Um, we do everything from forms. Uh, we have an insurance agency. Uh, the association is very active in different public policy efforts at both the state level and at the local level. Our major focus today is obviously in terms of more production uh, because we've got to get more units built. I think the challenge that, um, that this crazy housing market has uh, portrayed is that um, when we had the pretty significant downturn and a number of people lost their homes, a number of folks uh, moved into the apartments and into rental units. And I think the challenge that a number of owners had was recognizing that a number of homeowners who went into foreclosure and lost their homes found themselves needing a place to live but in the apartment industry, and when you rent out your unit, you really have to go purely by the economics because of the fair housing laws. You can't really have any sort of distinction. So as the association for 18,000 members, we did our best to try and work with some of the credit scoring bureaus to address that foreclosure issue because that can really take a major impact on your credit score, which is what our members utilize to qualify people. That's all they can utilize um, for all intents and purposes and pass rental experience. So, so that was a pretty big challenge. So that's sort of the quick overview. Hi, my name is Ling Tseng. I'm a commercial and residential real estate broker. I'm currently with Lion and um, this is my 14th year in real estate, so I've really seen the trend of the market, and it's worse, and it's best, and 
Um, when we really had the run, I had developed and implemented a uh, relocation program for the California Public Employees Retirement System that was nine years in the running. And um, what was unique about that program is we were able to give uh, a small cash rebate to first-time homebuyers. And um, my philosophy was that these people were all on fixed incomes that worked for the government. So we, we strive to give back to the community. And unfortunately, when the market fell, um, the home loan program fell too <laughs> because they didn't really have a, some systems in place to um, really look at all the defaulted loans that, that came through that, where the uh, borrowers were actually borrowing against their retirement. So, you know, um, we've learned a lot through this market. And um, I can say that I've kind of moved into the commercial market because it is a totally different game and um, there are buyers and sellers out there that are really needing service. So um, my, my service is, is, is very wide and varied and um, I see the market as, as far as commercial completely different from residential. Residential, I know that home buyers are really struggling because the inventory is extremely low. And uh, yes, there are bidding wars, and that's kind of the nature when there's low inventory. It's a supply and demand. So um, if you hire a really good uh, a real estate professional, that's what I advise. Don't try and do this all by yourself, especially if you're also selling property. Don't try to do it yourself because you'll run into all kinds of, of legal issues. So that's me in a nutshell. Thank you for inviting me. Well, hi, my name's Ryan Lundquist. I'm a certified residential appraiser, and I'm really honored to be here tonight. And uh, great beer, thank you, Roostaller. This is gonna help me tell the truth, too, so just so you guys know. That's um, what I want, drink more. Yeah, but uh, I run the Sacramento Appraisal Blog. I have a weekly post to just talk about the market, um, and I pay really, really close attention to trends. I like to be able to quote stats off the cuff, and I'm not a math geek by any stretch, but I think I'm, I'm passionate, though, because I think numbers tell a story, um, the story, the, the way that the market's moving, and so I hope that I can bring some of that tonight um, and just talk about what I'm seeing as an appraiser. On a personal level, I would say uh, the housing market crashed, and I lost almost every one of my clients, and so um, I, I made it, though, and I had to reinvent my business, and uh, I'm at I think an exciting place with, I, I really enjoy who I'm working for now. So that's me. Hello, I'm Ben Vandermeer. Uh, I'm a reporter with the Sacramento Business Journal. In case you couldn't tell, because I'm the worst dressed up here, I must be the journalist. Uh, I cover real estate and development for the Business Journal, which means I get to write about all the stuff the other folks up here are doing. Uh, it is a really interesting time to be writing about real estate right now. As I was mentioning to someone earlier, the reporters who preceded me were there during the downturn, and a lot of what they wrote about were foreclosures, bankruptcies, people losing their homes. I, on the other hand, am writing about projects happening, things moving forward, people buying again. Now, of course, it comes with its own things, such as inventory, such as rents rising, that we'll talk about. But it is a really interesting time to be writing about real estate and covering it, so I feel extremely fortunate. 
as far as my own personal experience goes, I've been on both sides of it. My uh, wife, she was my girlfriend at the time, bought a house in August 2005 in South Natomas. It was a brand new house. That was what was known later as the top of the market. <laughs> uh, literally, uh, that house eventually got short sold. And then as a result, we bought another house in late or fall of 2012, which was just about the bottom of the market. So I've seen both sides of it. Uh, I'm much happier in where we're at now, but it only proves that sometimes just dumb luck, more than anything, accounts for how your life is going and how your real estate decisions turn out. Thanks. Hi, my name is Dave Tan, and I'm the CEO of the Sacramento Association of Realtors, which is a trade association with about 6,700 members. Uh, I've been in that position for five years. Prior to that time, uh, I worked for about 30 years as a real estate broker, real estate attorney, uh, owning and managing uh, real estate brokerages. My wife, two daughters, and a sister-in-law all work in real estate brokerage, and uh, obviously we believe in the opportunities available in the industry. Uh, at the time that the uh, we hit the uh, bottom here in the area, my son, had just purchased a loft in ironworks in West Sacramento. Uh, he bought, of course, at the top of the market. And then, uh, number one, it was a three-story walk-up loft, and uh, two months later, his uh, wife was pregnant. Um, so he had a baby and two dogs in a three-story walk-up loft, and then the bottom dropped out, and then he got laid off from work. So uh, he lost that house in foreclosure, and. Uh, Unfortunately, he couldn't get an apartment to live in, so he came back and lived with Dad along with his dogs and babies uh, for a couple of years. Then he rented an apartment, but uh, two years ago, he was able once again to qualify with an FHA mortgage and purchased a house in Elk Grove, and now he's back in home ownership. It worked out pretty well for him because he bought that house from his sister, who seven years earlier had bought that house from me. So uh, everybody in the family has owned the house between uh, 1989 and now, uh, but uh, it did allow him to get back into the market. So now, thankfully, all seven of our kids own houses and uh, things are looking good. Well, I can say as a, uh, as a child who had to go to mom and dad for help, parents are very, thanks, thanks mom and dad, right? Because sometimes that's what helps you get the house. Uh, so thank you for the introductions. And I, my first questions are kind of on a broader scale and then drill down to specific topics. But I wanted to start with um, Dave because I think for most of us, when we're looking at houses, the realtor is our main point of contact. That's who we, who we uh, interact with on a day-to-day -day basis when we're looking for a home. So as the Associ Association of Realtors, I wanted to see, you know, an what the overview from the realtor's point of view is about last year's real estate market. Um, what did what were very notable things about 2016, you know, that just were notable? And then for 2017, how did, how will that compare and how will that contrast to the prior year in terms of, you know, what realtors are going to be experiencing with their clients? Okay, well... Last year in Sacramento, which is good or bad news, depending upon whether you owned a house or you were trying to buy a house, 
uh, we saw approximately a 20% increase in the median single-family sale price. Now, the thing that I always remind people is we always talk about median price. Median price, by definition, means that half the homes out there that sold, sold for less than that. So you don't have to be able to buy the median price house in order to be able to buy a house. There's a lot of houses out there that you can buy. And I always tell people, the first house you buy, you buy what you can buy. The second house you buy, you buy what you'd like to have. Uh, you need to get into the market and, and, and then work your way up. Uh, our problem in Sacramento uh, right now, and pretty much statewide, is the uh, lack of inventory. Uh, generally, we look at a balanced market of being somewhere around four to six months of inventory. Uh, we are running about two months of inventory, which means it's a strong seller's market, which means it is a, a difficult time for buyers to get into the market. There's just so much competition out there. When we get a home that's listed now and goes on the multiple listing service and it's listed for uh, about its fair market value, they get the six to eight offers in the first week. And uh, it's very competitive out there and uh, very difficult. And uh, that, that does not uh, bode well for people that are trying to get into the market. Uh, talking with uh, the people at the California Association of Realtors, uh, they tell us that in 2015, about 400,000 housing units sold in California. In 2016, about 400,000 units sold in California. They are projecting in 2017 about 400,000 housing units are going to sell in California. So they're not predicting that it's going to get any better for a while, and it's really not going to get better until Mike builds 100,000 houses over there and solves our problem for us. <laughs> so that, that's where we are, and it looks like more of the same for at least another year. So actually, I had a question about that. Can, when you talk to the California Association of Realtors, statewide, how does Sacramento compare and contrast with sales? Are, is it a hot market here? Is it just a hot market everywhere in the state? Well, it doesn't seem like it to us that live here, but we are the bargain capital of California when it comes to buying houses right now. There's very few places that are lower, and in fact, in this area, Sacramento County median price is lower than all the other counties except for uh, San Joaquin. So, you know, even though it doesn't look good for us from the standpoint of uh, pricing, it's as good as it's going to be. Okay. And then, Ryan, I wanted to ask you your point of view as an appraiser because during the housing search for me, I noticed and I was told a lot of uh, people who put bids said they would waive the appraisal, you know, just to get faster. And then I know when... I was looking, My there was concern like that bids may be way more than the house is appraised for, or maybe not because it's such a hot market, someone's going to buy it. So I was just wondering from your point of view as an appraiser, 2016 compared to 2017, will there be big differences or what are you seeing? Yeah, well, I, I think first, um, the market right now, I would say demand is very aggressive. and But... There's a little bit of a disconnect because I would say that value appreciation is actually more modest. And I think it's easy to confuse the two where, where when you're trying to buy a home and then you're thinking it is so hard to get into contract. But 
In 2012 and 2013, the market zoomed up because we had a steroid here called investment funds. Okay, Outside investors came in. Uh, Blackstone, you may have heard of them. They bought about 3,000 houses in Northern California. There were a lot of them, and they basically gutted the market. It really drove up prices. But in 14, 15, and 16, we saw what I would say is more modest appreciation. And so I think it's important to keep that in context because uh, I, I find that a lot of times when I'm talking to the real estate community, I'm saying, you know, we have to look at what is reasonable out there. Okay, we are in a market where supply is very limited. There's gonna be multiple offers if it's priced correctly. If it's not priced correctly, buyers can sniff that out. They're spending all day on Zillow and Redfin and MLS, Trulia, and they're not willing to overpay for a property unless it's really the right home, okay? So it, it's interesting, buyers do exhibit price sensitivity um, uh, despite inventory being so low, okay? And so I would say, I think that's an important distinction, but from an appraisal standpoint, we have to back up and say, what's reasonable to pay for this property? An appraisal should answer the question, if you lined up 100 buyers, what's the most probable price that this property should bring on the open market, okay? And then I find with a lack of inventory, sometimes what happens is it, um, it, it can really drive up offers, but those offers at extremely high levels don't necessarily reflect the market. Sometimes it's about financing, a buyer saying, hey, I'm tired of getting beat out and I'm gonna offer 400,000 even though all the sales are at 350, okay? And then we run into appraisal problems when really the problem is that the property got into contract for too much because of the climate of the market. It's an unfortunate reality. It's really tough on buyers that aren't bringing a lot of cash to the table. Okay, and so when Bay Area investors or others come in the market, um, you know, and they have cash deals or, or there's a conventional deal with a, with a lot more money down, they can, they can beat out that first time buyer that's putting three and a half percent down with FHA. Okay, so, um, so right now we're really poised to see um, this year, I, I would say what I would call modest depreciation. However, um, I think if lenders get very creative in financing, it, it could, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And I would say modest appreciation, a, more of a normal market over these next two quarters. Um, but, you know, maybe, maybe later we'll start talking about bubble conversations and such, and um, we can get into some other things there. But um, I, I think it's going to be interesting this year, and I, I would just say keep fighting. Realize that the market, though, there's a lot of markets within the housing market. Okay, we can look at, um, look at the market and say, here is, what every, here is the trend of the entire market, but that trend might not be the same at $200,000 versus $800,000. Okay? It's really aggressive under $300,000 especially. Okay, that's where value increases, unfortunately, for first-time buyers, entry level in the market. It's, it's really tough out there but it's not the same market at different price levels or land or duplexes or different neighborhoods. We're not seeing the same dynamic in every single location. The rent, rent increases here in Midtown are not the same increases we might see in South Sacramento, okay? And so I think it's really important. The market's like a Matryoshka doll and you start opening it up and there's a bunch of little things on the inside and same thing with housing. And, and we can't just impose this idea that the market's doing the same thing in every price range in every neighborhood. 
Thank you. And then, Ben, you you know you covered this for a living, and it was interesting how you said, you know, you're writing more about developments and uh, breaking ground. So um, I guess compared to last year, you know, this year is it going to be a boom? Are we going to see more um, uh, housing space? You know, residential apartments. What are you seeing in the Sacramento area? Well, overall, you're going to see more construction development because the finances uh, lend themselves to it more and more. Uh, it's becoming easier and easier for a new project to pencil out when you build it. The major cap on all of that, and, and Mr. Paris can speak to this, is that you got to find people to build the project for you. There's a really, really severe labor shortage right now in construction of all kinds that is keeping a lot of projects from moving forward, even though for every other reason they should be moving forward because they make financial sense. Uh, that's affecting everything from new apartments and mixed-use projects like we get down here in Midtown and Downtown to your single-family residential projects that you see in Elk Grove and Folsom and Roseville, places like that. The builders would generally tell you that because it takes time to rebuild that labor pi pipeline, those folks who do everything from wield the hammers to lay the drywall to concrete, all the steps that come in between, it takes time to get those folks back in, both getting them out of high school and then the ones with a little more experience or a little more education, convincing them after college to join. So it's probably gonna still be as it's been the last couple years, that same pattern for the next couple of years going forward. We'll probably get around, if we were doing really well, 5,000 new homes sold this year in the region. A typical year in the Sacramento region for new home construction is between eight and 12,000. And 5,000 right now, most of the builders would tell you is them going as fast and as hard as they can. That's just their upper capacity at the moment. So you're still quite a ways from even being at a normal level, and it would probably be another two, three years at least before we approach that. So Mike, I don't know if Ben answered <laughs> your question here, but I did want to ask, you know, as a home builder, the market now is easier, harder uh, to buy land and build. Obviously labor, you know, what are you facing now? Are you optimistic for this year? Or compared to 2016, it's the same, more of? I can you hear me? Hello? There we go. Um, maybe to piggyback the answer off of what Ben said, I think one of the, the issues on the supply-demand curve is exactly that. The cycle time in the industry has an imputed demand value to it. It has nothing to do with value. It has to do with the fact that we can't produce homes in the same time frame that we traditionally would see in a normalized market. When the recession hit and, and essentially from my books, it was June 18th of 2006, because that's when the builders made most of their money and it was not sustainable. So from that point on, when it finally came through and, and people lost their jobs, we lost trades. And there was since then, there has not been new trade formation. So to put it in perspective, I have a community with 47 homes under construction. We have about 22 of them that need drywall, and I have four drywallers on the job site. So you can imagine when you add three to four months onto your cycle time to deliver a home, that demand just rolls through the marketplace. And so that still has to work through. I don't see that correcting itself anytime soon. 
uh, it's a little more than a labor shortage as opposed to it's a lack of trade shortage in general. So you don't call up another plumber because they're just not available. Um, with respect to how that factors into your specific question on acquisitions and how we see the market going forward, I think we're looking at it a little differently. I, our focus in our business model is being a merchant builder, so we're really, in effect, a liquidator. Owning homes is not good for us. But at the same time, we've got to produce them. So we're trying to find better strategic partnerships that have absorbed some of the entitlement and land risk where we're actually acquiring the properties in more shovel-ready states. Again, it's going back to the discussion between contract and keys we have to shorten that cycle for us to be more effective going forward. Uh, I'd love to get to 5,000 homes. Um, I think we'd ended up 4,200, is that about the right number, for 2016? Uh, in the heyday, we hit 13, and that was over the top. But 8,000 right now is a supply curve that would be nice to put into the pipe, but we're not going to get there. It's, even if we wanted to get there, we're not going to get there from a capacity perspective. And then with the issues that you're facing, I mean, the, the financial cost that's attached to that passed on to the home buyers, is that right? I mean, but are they, is it the market yeah. now where you can pass it on and they'll, they'll take it? Um, let's, when, I, when we sign a purchase agreement, we're accepting all the cost. We can't go back later to our customers and say, oh, by the way, our costs went up, we gotta charge you more money doesn't work that way. So we have this compression, and the, when you talk about an expanded cycle time, we are further at risk and exposed to cost and cost controls than we would normally be. Part of the, the way we look at that is we're probably going to start more homes and have more homes in the pipeline, but we will not release them for sale until they're a little further constructed, just so that we can kind of control that cycle a little bit. With respect to future land prices and things of that nature, we're always gonna be at risk. Every time we sell a home, we're one more home out of business. So we have to replenish that pipeline in a form and fashion that we feel we can still deliver the homes timely. Uh, a lot of risk in the business. And then from the real estate investing point of view, Ling, I wanted to ask, I know I wanna focus more on residential, although commercial may build in, but I was wondering if you are a real estate investor and you're looking to buy a, uh, a multi-tenant building or uh, a home that will val will appreciate in value is Sacramento an area where uh, investors are looking or or not compared to 2016 and this year what if anything has changed from the investors perspective that's a great question I, I actually have uh, a series of investors that are always looking but they're <laughs> I hate this term but it's really it really captures them. They're bottom feeders. <laughs> they look for the distressed uh, properties that are basically falling down, that haven't been taken care of, and usually they're upside down in equity. So um, that's how a lot of my investors are looking to buy. And um, usually they come in with all cash deals, which makes it a little bit more difficult if you're if you're a beginning investor, it's, you're going to face that competition. I mean, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to sugarcoat it in any way because that's really true. There's, um, as, especially my investors are they're very seasoned, so they're always looking for a really good deal. And um, uh, right now, this is really a buy and hold market because of 
the, the softness of the appreciation that's going on. So a lot of uh, investors are looking at multi-units because of the rental um, market being so uh, strict right now. There's really limited um, um, available rentals right now. So um, my investors are looking for deals in the multi-unit um, area. So I hope that answers your question, yeah? That, that does, and then, and then uh, once we get to Tom, I'm gonna open up to all panelists. But I wanted to ask, in terms of distressed properties, I mean, obviously, you know, 2008 to 2011 was, I guess, just rich for the taking. And now I'm wondering, in terms of distressed properties that investors wanna take, you know, not move into, but sell, is there still plenty of opportunity for them or less than there was a few years ago? Or it depends on the price region? That's a great question. Now. I'm going to separate out the distressed properties. There's, there's a residential uh, single-family home distressed properties um, that's less than four units. And uh, my theory is, is that a lot of the loans that were originated in 2005, 6, and 7, especially those interest-only loans, those fancy loans where um, the, you know people that were making $50,000 uh, a year were being put in $500,000 houses, which really wasn't appropriate. But um, anyway, um, those loans are coming due. And I think at any time, we're going to see some single-family homes uh, hit the market as far as short sales and foreclosed homes. We, the inventory's been really low on that for the last couple years. I haven't seen any, but I think uh, coming 2017 and 18, I, I believe that they're going to hit. Now, as far as the multi-unit um, um, complexes, more than four units, multiplexes, that's uh, four and above, um, most investors find them themselves, or um, I actually have to do quite a bit of research in the tax records to find um, a person, an owner that's in a distressed situation. And, and a lot of times what has happened with a lot of the distressed multi-unit um, owners, they have um, they've basically over-improved on the property and they, they, they bought at the wrong time, obviously, but they've over-improved on the property and, and started losing money when the market fell. So they, they just kind of let the property sit, hoping that it would appreciate back to the original market. And, that hasn't happened. So they're out there. They're just you just need to search for them. You, you need to really um, do your due diligence. And um, I suggest hiring a real estate professional <laughs> to help you. <laughs> so Tom, you're leading into uh, the rental housing because obviously a lot of us. And I was a renter up until November, and there's a whole bunch out there. So the rental situation here. I mean, I think I read in the business journal it's been a year and year increases of. I don't know, at least 5%, 10% rent increase. Um, so I was wondering, you know, is 2017 going to be any different? And then how does Sacramento compare or contrast to other cities' rental markets right now? How hot are we on a scale of, you know, other uh, places in Sacramento, I mean, California? Well, there's no question that um, <clears throat> the rental industry is doing relatively well. Um, there's a couple of factors for that. Um, one is that um, there's what's called in the industry barriers to construction, 
And so what you'll find is you'll find the institutional um, lenders and the folks with a lot of money, including CalPERS, STRS, the Real Estate Investment Trust, are always looking for the best return on investment. It's good and bad. So what ends up happening is that you will find people will invest in apartment buildings and because the homeowner market, a variety of things, one is the bubble collapse, the problem that, that we've got with lending in banks today. Banks today don't lend easily to um, homeowners or potential homeowners, especially first-time homeowners. And the reality is that unless you can do an FHA loan, you are looking at a 20% down payment. And that's very, very difficult. If that continues, the rental market will continue to be very positive. Um, positive for the owners and the investors, not necessarily so much for the renters, because if there's not supply, if there's not an adequate supply, and we've sort of danced around the issue, the only reason that rents go up is because there's an inadequate supply of rental housing, which means you can't deliver fast enough. <clears throat> when you look at what happened in the Bay Area, and then I'll come to Sacramento, over the last five, six years, there have been five times as many new jobs as there have been new units built for apartments. When that happens, it's basic supply and demand. People, um, property owners can demand more of a rent and people can pay it because there's also higher income tenants that are available to basically take that property. It's a problem. Sacramento, I have to tell you, I just looked at the numbers and it is a little bit disconcerting because when you look at the job growth in the greater Sacramento area, from October of 2015 to October of this year, we've added, I think it's about 26, 27,000 jobs, but we've only brought on, in terms of housing units, about 5,000 units. There's about 14,000 multifamily units in the pipeline, but in order to get those built, it doesn't happen overnight. There's you know, probably 18 months to two years, if you're lucky. But Sacramento is actually one of the hottest markets in the country right now, and I think it's because of that imbalance with new production and new jobs. And so what that's resulted in is that's resulted in vacancy rates, at least in, in buildings that are five units or more, probably hovering in the 2.5 to 3% vacancy. We sort of look at it from a political perspective as that's dangerous. We sort of like to see a vacancy rate somewhere five, six percent. Once you get down to the two to three percent, all of a sudden the market gets very, very tight. And what's happening in Sacramento is, I think it was in 2014 to 2015, you had rent increases averaging about 7.1, 7.2. We are forecasting probably rent increases on the average of about seven to seven and a half percent. Now, what could change that is if, in fact, some of these projects that are in the pipeline can somehow get built. Um, this may not be the political thing to say, but I'll say it anyway. Though we have a construction issue in terms of trades, folks, one of the biggest issues that apartment builders have is trying to put an apartment building or increase densities where there are single family homes. And that's a serious, serious problem. Um, 
And you can sort of understand the homeowner's perspective. They have this big concern about putting an apartment in a higher density building. But the reality is, if we don't do that, you're never going to get the supply that you need to level out these prices. So that's my answer. It's a good one. It's a very solemn one, too. Um, and I, I'm going to see, I know I'm going to open the questions up to all panelists now. But I wanted to see, you know, we focus so much on um, Sacramento, the city, the grid proper. And I, I know Placer, El Dorado have had high jumps and, and then YOLO too. So I was wondering if it's, this whole region is hot or Sacramento specifically is, um, and then, you know, obviously there's apartments, the densities here, Placer, El Dorado may, there's more of the single family homes, but I don't know, maybe they are thinking more urban density. So I was just curious for all you panelists, what are you seeing in terms of Sacramento specifically, or maybe it's just looking at the Sacramento region, Placer, El Dorado, Yolo, are we all moving in tandem or are certain areas uh, doing different things in terms of price increases or certain types of home developments? Ryan. So, I'm a big fan of analogies, and I would say overall the market is like a hot pocket taken out of the microwave a little too early. So some, some spots are frozen, and there's other parts that are really hot, and there's other parts that are warm. We've all been there, right? Um, so I would say that the region as a whole has, has that whole dynamic, and it's really going in the same direction as I, as I watch stats. But I think the interesting part to me is that there are a couple stories of stats um, that have permeated the market from uh, Realtor.com and Zillow, and this notion of that we're going to be the hottest you know, market on earth, right? And so everyone's talking about that. And I think that when we read articles, we really have to look at the data and say, well, what does this really mean? And so from my view of things, it seems to, the articles seem to suggest that we would see five to 7% appreciation. And so that tells me that that's actually pretty modest, okay? I know our wallets don't feel that way, our affordability, but it's not, you know, double digits, you know, 20% in one year scary, okay? And so, yes, it hurts, but, but I think that when something's being called the hottest market, one of the hottest market in the nation at five to 7%, I kind of stand back and go, well, what's the rest of the nation doing then? Um, and then also, I think that um, we we have to really consider this this notion of hot um, and um, and almost just just look at it in context. Okay, so um, oh gosh, I had such a good thought and it escaped me. It'll it'll come back, I, I promise. But um, but let's look at that in context and really look at the stat that it, it's not. Uh, my my sense is that we're using this word and, and is that as the news permeates the, um, throughout the media and throughout home buyers, we're like, wow, this is the hottest market ever. But then when we read the actual fine print, oh, okay. And hopefully it would play out like that. I would, I would like to see that um, for locals. Um, but keep in mind also, there are very few foreclosures now. Um, does anyone want to take a guess in the first quarter of 2009 how many properties that sold on MLS were bank owned? Throw out a percent. How many do you think were bank owned properties? Okay, 73% of homes were bank owned sales. And does anyone know what that number is right now? Two and a half percent, okay? So 
we'd no longer have those distressed beaters at the bottom of the market, okay? So there, there's a lot of people who say, yeah, learn how to flip homes by buying distressed properties. And I think, okay, that's really great, but 2.5% of the market is our bank-owned homes. And so we have to realize one of the reasons why there's so much price pressure at the bottom is because the bottom end of the market has been wiped out for those low-priced beaters, okay? Um, that was a thought I wanted to convey. It came back. I hope that was worth it. <laughs> Anyone else have any thoughts about just the general region? Dave? Yeah, well, I'd like to, I'd like to mention, uh, consistent with what Ryan was saying, is that, uh, you know, we, we talk about, you know, somehow you have to have a statistic in order to refer properties. So the statistic they like to use is median price. But the problem is, we're seeing 20% increase in median prices across the region, but part of that is because of what Ryan said, the bottom end of the market is gone. So the upper end of the market is selling, the median price is gonna make enormous increases. That doesn't mean that anybody's house went up 20% last year. It means that the median priced house that sold went up 20% last year, but that's because the bottom of the market is basically gone, the foreclosed properties are gone. When you look at market-wide, uh, as I mentioned earlier, San Joaquin County is lower than us with their median price. They're at 319. We're just above that at 325. But Yolo's at 375, Placer's at 427, and El Dorado's at 442. But when you look at the type market, the market is different. You go to El Dorado and you're buying you know, property in the hills with some land around it as compared to Sacramento County where we're selling properties that uh, uh, maybe are you know, 800, 900,000 square foot properties on a 5,000 square foot lot. It's a different product. So you can't say that a house, the same house in, San, in uh, Sacramento County, if you had that same exact house in El Dorado County, that it would be that much higher because it's really not. The region, the prices are relatively consistent, just the, the statistics show something different. So I had a question now about, you know, 2016 was obviously an election year. So my first question is about that is, on um, California, you know, Jerry Brown uh, had in his budget that we need to build more housing, affordable housing, and you know, how are we gonna do that? And again, we're gonna go into a whole, whole can of worms about affordable housing in the next panel, but I was just wondering for you, in terms of local, you know, on a city level, regional level, state level, in terms of efforts that um, the public sector wants to make to increase housing, will that work? Will that increase? You know, what are you seeing? Is that gonna help any of you or any of your clients, um, what the state, is proposing to do or not? Tom. Well, I mean, what's kind of um, interesting for everybody to know is that every city in the state of California is supposed to adopt what's called their fair share of housing, which means everybody's supposed to build a certain amount of housing. And the way it works is that cities basically submit to the state of California in their housing element how many housing units they're going to basically provide. But an interesting thing happens, and I said earlier, kind of a no growth attitude or a slow growth attitude, and it doesn't matter where you're at, I'm not making a value judgment, but when, you, but when a city takes that position or the citizens take that position, it's very difficult to meet that number. And let me give you an example. If somebody basically, if the city submits that they're gonna build 50 units on this 
one acre parcel of land, they submit that, that they're going to build 50 units. Well, in reality, I don't know, there aren't a whole lot of cities in the state of California where you're going to build 50 units per acre because that's going to be a mid-rise to a high-rise apartment building or condominium. What ends up happening is that 50 units probably goes down to 10 or 15. And so all of a sudden, people don't meet their fair share. So, you know, the governor, I think, was well-intended, um, but I think until people come to the realization that they actually want to include housing for their kids, for their grandchildren, for their friends, I don't know how we're going to get stuff built in California. I mean, I think you talked about the California Environmental Quality Act. You talk about that at a whole another thing. But when it takes a builder, whether you're a single family builder or you're an apartment builder, it takes you two to three years to basically break ground if you're lucky. And by the way, you've got to finance costs that you're carrying. The costs go up. So the more you delay, the more difficult it becomes. So I'm an optimistic person that will find a way to fix it, but I don't think there's a fix in what the governor did. Ben, did you have a comment? Yeah, what's, what's interesting about that is that they're talking about things on a statewide level. Within the region here, you have a wide variety of cities in terms of how they're approaching it. Some cities really do make an effort to try to speed through projects that might meet what the governor is talking about, they're close to transit or they're more dense or they're in more urban areas. Uh, for example, in Sacramento itself, there have been a number of mixed-use projects, I think actually about a dozen, that have been approved by the city in just the last three or four years. The reason they haven't been built has nothing really to do with the city, but a lot to do with, one, financing and labor, but also the fact that every now and then the neighbors go, well, just because the city approved it doesn't mean I'm okay with it, and into court you go. And I don't know if what the governor is prescribing necessarily preempts that. Uh, there is a great... American tradition of suing if you don't like something, and I don't really know that any policy prescription at the state level will necessarily stop people from saying, hey, that just affects my neighborhood, my property values, my quality of life, that and you won't still have some delays resulting from f folks who decide that for whatever reason they don't think it complies with CEQA, they just don't like the project, they're going to go to court over it. That I think is going to be an interesting, uh, if this policy goes into place, how does that play out? And Mike, I, I did want to ask as a home builder, because I know Curtis Park Villages, which I just moved nearby, having his own, you know, lawsuit over that, but um, or do you, I mean, do you regularly work with city officials, state officials? Do you have more conversations with them now than you did before? Or is it just like, well, there's only so much they can do, and therefore there's only so much you can do, and it's just, you got a deal? Where do I start? There is limitations. I think CEQA reform has got to be at the top of the list at the state level. It's, it's functionally obsolete. Uh, it, there's, it's too easy for uh, public projects that serve the public good and fill the gaps that, that Tom was referring to that basically just get uh, stuck in the pipeline. The challenge, um, I think also from, from my perspective, is there's still a, a disconnect between approvals 
and actual delivery of the housing stock in itself. Put in perspective, the 10,000 homes was a great thing to throw out there. It sounded good. Uh, I think last year we probably had less than 422 permits issued for homes in the city of Sacramento. We're just not going to get there. And, and so there's a disconnect between municipalities and the actual ability to produce that. And a lot of it gets stuck in the bureaucracy. Some of it gets stuck in labor shortages within cities. Um, they too have been decimated and they don't have the ability to process things. But secondly, uh, to Ryan's point earlier, it's not a one size fits all. Regionally, you got different areas that have better infrastructure. You got areas in the city of Sacramento that have very old infrastructure. You know, we have a project where we had to replace a hundred year old water line and those are tough things to do and they take time and they take a lot of capital to do. Um, I'm going to bring up a five-letter word for many people in here, but I'm wondering about, on a national level, the Trump administration. Is that going to do anything to help or hinder uh, the housing market? And I ask this because I think when Ryan uh, tweeted about the event, um, someone did say, ask about the, uh, some, I didn't even read it, but something about the mortgage break that Trump is going to repeal. So just um, with the change in administration and Republican-controlled Congress, what does that mean for us here in California for building and buying homes and apartments? Tom, I'm sorry, David. Yeah, well, they're talking about, uh, of course, this gets floated around every couple of years when they're doing budget talks back there, but they're talking about removing the mortgage interest deductibility, which means that you cannot deduct your mortgage interest on your income taxes. They're talking about offsetting that with a larger standard deduction. But of course, a larger standard deduction doesn't have any recognition of whether you're a, a homeowner or not. So it doesn't provide uh, benefits uh, to uh, uh, home ownership. But uh, mortgage interest deduction, uh, for some people that argue that it's just a special interest thing, it was in the tax code in 1913 when it was adopted. It's never not been in the tax code that you have mortgage interest deductibility. However, back in 1986, when they did tax reform, they capped it at a total of $1 million interest between your first and second residence. Uh, people in Kansas think that you would have to be absolutely insane to have a million dollars in mortgage interest uh, liability. But in fact, we live in California, and if you own a house here and you own a house in Tahoe, it's very easy to have a million dollars in uh, mortgage interest deductibility over the year. Uh, so that's happening at the federal level. At the state level, they're talking about, and it's probably more likely to happen at the state level, they're talking about removing mortgage interest deductibility on second homes. And that would be devastating to the Tahoe market if the people that own their second homes in Tahoe could no longer deduct mortgage interest deductibility. It would be a major decision maker between whether to buy or not buy in the Tahoe area if you're unable to to deduct that mortgage interest. So those are the things that I think that, uh, that government uh, can be doing out there. One of, the, one of the issues that I have with government, of course, you mentioned earlier about affordable housing. I'm 75 years old. I've learned a few things along the road. And one of the things that I think that I've learned is that government can only fix a problem it created. Uh, and one of the problems that it's created uh, in affordable housing, they're trying to look at ways to fixable affordable housing now. Before you buy the dirt and build the house, 
depending upon the jurisdiction you're in, government's going to extract between seventy dollars and $100,000 in fees on the builder. Now, how do you create affordable housing when you're paying the government between seventy dollars and $100,000 before you put a shovel in the ground? And you have to fix that, I think, before you can get to affordable housing. Yeah, it's, it's all interconnected as I'm learning. Um, so if you guys want to start lining up at the panel and ask questions to one specific panelist or all, um, please do. And then I'm, I'm going to do one question before we go into audience Q&A. And um, the Bay Area effect. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of people are moving here from there and SoCal and so forth. Um, so that I think we probably all get a sense of how that's impacting the real estate market. But I guess I'm just curious if there's any specific things that you're noticing about you know, the Bay Area effect on the housing market or people moving in. And I'll, I'll tie this into another question I have. Someone had mentioned the, the jobs that are coming here. Um, a lot of the people I know who move here from the Bay Area still commute you know, uh, on Capitol Corridor or they drive or they um, telecommute, but they're, there's, they're not, sometimes they're not finding jobs here. They're still working in the Bay Area for whatever reason. And then sometimes when I look at the job uh, sector here, a lot of jobs that are being created are service jobs. And those typically don't seem to have that high salary. So, but the housing prices keep going up. So it's just interesting to me how Bay Area impacts in some ways, in some ways it doesn't bring, it brings some things but not others. So I guess in terms of the people moving, the jobs that are coming up from the ground, you know, how will that impact our housing market and housing prices in the future, if that makes sense? Anyone want to take that tangled question? Uh, Ling. Well, I've actually noticed um, with my buyers, I'm getting a lot of relocations from the Bay Area up to this area just because it's more affordable. They get more bang for their buck in a house. Uh, what they owned down in San Francisco area or San Mateo County is maybe a small 1,500 square foot uh, single family home. And that same value, they can buy, you know, a 5,000 square foot, five bedroom, three bedroom house in um, Folsom or El Dorado Hills. So that's that's really impacting our market. And I don't know if you know this, but it, are they finding the jobs to go with the house? Or they're like, well, we're, we still got the job in the Bay Area, so we'll telecommute or do Capital Corridor or drive? Or you know, do you see any sense of they still have to? Some have relocated because of their position, but many of them I don't mind the commute just because they want a bigger house because of the growth of their family or for personal reasons. Ryan, did you have something to add to that? Yeah, I was going to say, I think Bay Area buyers, they are a force in the market, but I don't think they are the force, though. And so I would say that they're a factor, but they're not the driving factor. And so to keep that in context, and yes, they're out there, and I talk with them all the time, and... Um, you know, but but I don't think that they're driving the market like say Blackstone in 2012, the big investment fund from Wall Street. They're they're not that dynamic here. So, but they are here. They're here, but it's a lot of locals who are just looking for their first home or whatever. Okay, all right. First audience question. Hi, I'm Matt. I'm, I'm a, I work at the legislature. I'm a was born on the tail end of the 80s, so uh, obviously looking to own a home eventually. Actually, that's kind of what my um, my what I'd like to pose to you is is uh, 
I talked to a lot of people in my generation. I've thought about it. It's just I am confronted with this idea that I will never own a home. Is that, is that exactly the wrong mindset I should have, or is that just, I, I know so many people, especially my age, especially who are you know, only now just settling into a career path, and, and then confronting the idea that you know, their career path is not what a career path was. They, they got to change jobs in two or three years if they want to raise. You know, if they're, they, they've got to change, they've got to go to a new place. And more and more it looks like everyone, every, you know, we're, these, you know, younger people, new generation, millennials, whatever you want to call them, just home ownership is looking less and less, yeah, like a, like, like a mainstay. Is that, is that ruiny? Is that, is that ruinous for all of you? Uh, and, and, and if so, what can you, what can you say to give us hope, I guess? David. I have a staff at 25 working at the association. In the past six months, four of my employees aged 28 to 33 have purchased a home and moved into it. And these are people making, uh, for the most part, making incomes around uh, thirty dollars to $40,000 a year. So it's possible to do it. Uh, you just have to do uh, what I mentioned earlier, which is buy the first house that you can afford to buy, buy the second house that you want to buy. But you need to get into the market and get started and take advantage because if housing is going to keep going up each year, you need to get in there so that appreciation is your money, not somebody else's money. So you kind of need to buy what you can get and then be able to, uh, to uh, make it work for you in the long term. Ben? I would add, I think uh, what we're seeing right now is a market responding to some of those things as well. The houses that were built 10 years ago don't all cases match folks of your generation necessarily what you want with a home. So I think what you're seeing a lot more, there's more of a concentration on infill housing and even the traditional good old fashioned uh, American subdivision is starting to have aspects of it that feel a little more urban, walkable, have things that might appeal to people who are buying now as opposed to the folks who are buying the McMansions of 10 years ago. And I think the market will generally find a way to produce something that folks want to buy. And if it not, at least there will still be a need for housing, so they'll at least want to live in it long term, if that means renting or whatever it might be. So I think there's still going to be always a segment that will want to buy because of life choices. You have a family, you want to be somewhere for schools, uh, maybe you're not staying out until uh, two anymore on our street, uh, and instead you're <laughs> and so those things tend to work themselves out over time, but I do think the market to some extent will address that as well. Brian? And I just want to say, yes, there is hope. And um, the, I, I mean, for, and it may be controversial to say, but I, I don't think home ownership's the end all in life anyway. But, um, but I think that there is hope, and, and I, I think that I felt the same way when, when I was 28, you said? Um, and so, so good guess, and that's very reassuring. Didn't you say that? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I heard 28 30. somewhere. That was in my mind. 30. He's a young 30. Um, so, but I think part of the struggle, though, is with student loan debt, and that's sort of an X factor in in the market, and that's going to need to play out. And I think that's where lenders are going to have to be proactive. I think about looking at 
what it's like to be a millennial and what it's like to grow up and it's not the same world it was in 1960 or 70, 80, 90 where, you know, buyers weren't coming with, you know, the baggage, so to speak. And so, so hopefully I think the lending community will respond and be um, a little bit more gracious in, in that regard. Tom. You posed a question earlier about the election and I have no idea what Trump's going to do. I think anybody does. The one thing he might do the one thing he might do is is anti sort of regulation, and he's not a big fan of the Dodd-Frank um, banking issue, which has really created a situation for lenders. That's why you have to have the 20% down, because the banks have to go through all the stress tests. The other thing I would say, and I'm just gonna use my son. My son was born and raised in Sacramento and moved to Philadelphia on a job transfer. And he bought a house in Philadelphia, this the outskirts of Center City, um, a two-bedroom house for $115,000. And so w what I would say to anybody here, and I'm just gonna go back to my supply side issue, for those of you that wanna buy a house, and for those of you that don't want rents to skyrocket, whenever you hear about a development project, particularly as it re relates to residential, go to the city council, and say, you know what? I don't live here, but I'd like to because the developers are the worst people to basically make the argument to the city councils to approve the project. No, I'm, 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 I'm not kidding you. And, and, and here's the reason why. I mean, this is sort of on, on my horse. Great developer, great builder. Actually, he needs to change his name to housing provider. But in reality, he is not, and he's not going to tell you this, but I'll tell you this because I have a lot of builders that are part of my association. They are not going to piss off the city officials and they're not going to piss off the neighborhoods because they have to build again. And so the reality is they need folks like you to come forward and say, you know, approve this project. There's actually a group in the Bay Area right now called BARF, I kid you not, and it's basically... I do know them, actually. You do know them, right. And What does that stand for? It's Bay Area Renters for Housing Action. And, and what they want to do is they want to, and their mentality is build, build, build. Build micro units, build on top of grocery stores, just build the damn thing because there's no place for people to live. And that's a problem. And the folks that are most impacted by it, by the way, are service employees, the folks that make the minimum wage and a little bit above working income families. And we, we gotta change this. So you asked your question, my son moves to Philadelphia, he says, Dad, this is a great, oh, by the way, it's a great house, you know, less than $120,000. And I'm thinking, he could never do that here. I mean, so anyway, sorry, I'm getting my soul box, but anyway. Yes, home provider, if you want to respond. Home. Home provider, <laughs> I like that. Uh, you know, there is hope. And I, I'm gonna maybe give you some advice. Understand what it takes to buy a home. Understand what it takes to keep yourself out of trouble credit-wise, and just understand how our, our mortgage system works from a personal perspective. I see often buyers that come in and they're not prepared. So it has nothing to do with the ability to pay the mortgage, it's just they weren't prepared to buy the home. So I'm not sure if you saw what my eyes did when you said you know, yeah. uh, stay out of trouble credit-wise, but I mean that ship has sailed <laughs> for 
yeah. for so many people, you know, my age and younger, Ed. But yeah. but I, I do appreciate it. And, and this, this is a reassuring answer, you know. Um, the market will adjust. That's something a lot of people my age are not used to hearing. <laughs> but I, but it's something I certainly believe. And, you know, build, I know you obviously want to build more units. Um, th thank you. Thank you for your answers. Appreciate it a lot. And I had an additional question tied to that, I, I guess primarily for you, Mike, but others could see this. You know, the trends, the housing trends that you're acting on, the micro-building, uh, multi-generational homes, uh, you know, boomers who are aging and are looking for one-story homes, is that playing out in terms of what you're looking at um, for new developments, or is that what real estate investors are asking for? You know, what are you seeing for new, new types of uh, new housing? Uh, great question in the sense that we don't talk often enough about social economics and demographics. And what I'm seeing is a top-down com competition for the same home that's going for the first-time buyer. Let me give you an example. Uh, the baby boom generation and all the, the cliches associated with that haven't really showed up. And there's been different reasons for that. And part of it has been they're looking at a lifestyle shift and the areas and the shift they wanted to do, there were not housing, there wasn't a housing stock in the areas that they were willing to accept. So this, the decision was to do nothing, just stay put. So when the housing stock comes on, all of a sudden the first time or the move up buyer who's trying to find a bigger home for their family is now competing with the seasoned veteran buyer who's now trying to move down into the same housing stock. I'll give you an example. Uh, we have a community here in, at, at 10th and D, it's called the Creamery. It's a, it's a great project. I was concerned about who would show up because we were kind of the first one to the dance. I know Ben, you and I talked about this a little bit. The first 35 buyers in there, our average age of the first 35 buyers was 56. I never saw that coming. And uh, it, I could go on more, but you're talking about the housing stock is now being moved into by those people that already have homes. So that changes the, the dynamic in, in, the, in the local markets quite a bit. Next question. Hi. Um, often when I'm driving to work, I get to have a nice view of the skyline of Sacramento. And I often wonder what it's going to look like in the future. And I was kind of wondering what you guys think it's going to look like in the future, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Are we going to have a bunch of high rises like we see in a lot of other cities that are growing? Are we going to stick with the single family homes and sprawl? What do you think it's going to look like? Is that for me? <laughs> All right, Mike, take it. <laughs> I'm not a high rise builder. Um, I think the, the, the sprawl issue is uh, starting to get some constraints from a, from a technical perspective. What I am seeing, though, is a lot of the suburban markets are starting to urbanize. And when I talked about that 56-year-old buyer, there's a lifestyle shift that's looking for a more urban environment. So you probably will see higher densities because of that. You're going to see more stairs in homes. You're just not going to get a ranch-style home in the downtown core of a city. And the only way to meet that demand is to go vertical. I can answer that even a little bit differently. Uh, I would imagine this year, if everything holds true, I know of developers of two uh, residential towers on the grid in Sacramento. One is going to be at 20, 
3rd and J Street, and the other one is going to be at 19th and J Street. And the developers for both say they're going to do their work this year, and those are 14 and 11 stories, respectively. And those are residential. Uh, we haven't had residential built to that height in Sacramento in probably 20 or 30 years. I would even guess what the last one would be. So you're going to see some projects like that, definitely. Great. Next question. Hi. I understand that a lot of you guys represent um, builders and developers and um, sellers and stuff like that. Um, so that might influence your answer here. But um, I was wondering, it sounds like already there's such a shortage of housing and there's these bottlenecks. What impact would um, rent control, if that were to exist, have on this market? And how has that affected um, other markets that where it exists? Tom, I'm assuming this is I your assume that's, I'll take that one sure. first, yeah. Um, rent control has only exacerbated the problems. If you look at Berkeley, San Francisco, Santa Monica, those areas, what the specific members of society that they were trying to address, actually those people are now gone from those cities because it artificially inflates the price of the unit. And the other big issue is there's not a rent control ordinance other than in New York that does means testing. And so what ends up happening, just the quick one is, somebody that's making $100,000 happens to be in a rent control unit, they never move. And so it's never, it's never worked. Plus it's a disincentive for capital to flow into the market. Wasn't there, wasn't there um, on the ballot in a few cities, I guess, Bay Area about rent control. I didn't really follow it, but I saw on your website there was talk about Correct. what was on the ballot and and how did that do overall? What what will that result in, if anything, those efforts? Yeah, uh, there were five rent control measures on the ballot, and um, the one in Richmond, California, passed, which is unfortunate. Richmond has a serious issue, and it did pass. Um, and then there was also one that passed in Mountain View. And so those two rent control measures are um, now in place, and the other three failed. So, yeah. Uh, I understand those arguments. Um, they are like kind of textbook, um, but also as it, from the perspective of a renter, I mean, that's something that would, there's already a bottleneck in the market without rent control. So to me, rent, rent goes up and up and up. Um, that seems like a potential solution because it's not getting fixed with no rent control. Um, and, and just the perspective, I understand that U.S.'s perspective is one of uh, builders and owners and that kind of thing. I'm just, I'm just would love to hear some comforting solutions to young people who are, renter, who are tenants, who would maybe like to own a home someday, but it just sounds so, so out of reach, um, especially when so much of the existing supply is like you were saying, older people and people's second homes in Tahoe, people who are uh, investors and all these people, but there's a lot of young people who, you know, just are struggling to own their first home and I would love to hear some solutions to that, although I can't expect that of you, but. <laughs> uh, Dave? Well. The only real solution to it is to increase the number of units that are available. Units need to be built. They have not been being built. For the last 20 years statewide, we have been forming between uh, marriage, 
family growth, uh, immigration from outside the country, relocation. You know, I always say that every time that somebody is sitting there and they just shoveled three foot of snow and they go inside and watch the uh, golf tournament at Pebble Beach, they're thinking, I need to be in California. And they come out here. So for the past several years, well, basically since the collapse, we've been having on average 165,000 new households formed in California. We have been creating on average 95,000 new housing units. That's a $70,000 shortfall every year. Since the collapse, that's 700,000 housing units that are needed, and that's what's causing the increase in the prices, that's what's causing the increase in the rents, and the only solution is to get those 700,000 units built as fast as we can. In the short term, there is no easy solution to the problem. I mean, my daughter went to Berkeley and she lived in a rent-controlled apartment, and I loved it as the dad when she was living in the rent-controlled apartment. But as soon as I walked out of there, I had to take my clothes off and wash them because it was such a dump. <laughs> and the landlord was not going to spend money on fixing it up because there's no return on investment. And investors don't put money into something if they can't get a return on investment. The other side of it, for 30 years, I was a landlord, uh, mostly with uh, Section 8 tenants. And if I had a tenant that was in my property and they were taking care of it, I didn't raise the rent. I just let them stay there. And I went one time 10 years without raising the rent on this family because I really liked the family and they took good care of the property. But I will tell you this. If it was a rent-controlled jurisdiction, I would have raised the rent every year, whatever was allowed by rent control, because otherwise I would be seriously damaging the sales price when I wanted to sell that property. So it works counterproductive to what you might think that rent control does for the tenant. It actually forces them to face increases every year. Uh, I lived in, uh, in San Jose for a while, and they have one there that's, I think, five units and higher. There's an amount of rent increase that you can have without having to go through a hearing process. And most landlords there raise the rent that much every year, not because they want to, but because they have to. Otherwise, they're taking money out of their own pocket because they're hurting the resale value of the property. So rent control is really not a solution. It sounds very attractive, but it's really not a solution. The solution is we have to build inventory. We have to make units available. Ryan. And it's hard when there's no answer that's really hopeful, you know. And I have a son who's 13, and he tells me, five years, I'm out of here. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I say, good luck affording the market, right? And I literally have this conversation with him, but I have an investor friend who his advice is so true, we don't like to hear it, but he says this, the only solution is to make more money. And it's really true. And so we have to do that, and over the last 10 years, out of pocket as a self-employed person, I've paid about $100,000 in health insurance, okay? That's real. And I wish it wasn't the case, but I have to make more money to, to make it happen. And so I think in, in the housing situation that, you know, I don't know, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk has the answers, right? So, um, no, but there's, there's just, there's, I, I just think that's the reality. So I don't know if that's hope, but it's true maybe. Well, I, I do have a question to tie in to that in terms of, you know, uh, 
barriers or getting the housing built. And I'm wondering, the, the acronym was mentioned before, NIMBY, so not in my backyard, the people who are against it. That seems like that could, is that a barrier that could be uh, overcome, uh, especially when, you know, these people have kids and they want to get them out of the house. So I'm just wondering about the NIMBY factor. Um, I see that all over the, you know, place in the Bay Area when I lived there, just preventing housing being built. I'm not sure how much of NIMBYism here in Sacramento hurts, you know, rental units and uh, housing. But what about the NIMBY factor? Anyone want to take that? Oh, Tom? it's completely real. Um, I mean, you have to remember that in California, you have the recall process. So if a city councilman approves a, develop a housing project and the neighbors don't like it, they can go to recall that individual. I mean, that puts that city council person in a very, very difficult position. And every elected official, oh, there's a staffer back there, they basically think about, you know, getting elected and remaining elected. Term limit, there you go, right. I mean, but the reality is that at the local level, you're very close. You're very close to, to everybody. And council members have to be very, very careful because in parts of California, people get recalled. I mean, they do the wrong thing. There is a new group, by the way, it's called YIMBY. Yes, in my backyard. They just held their first conference in Boulder, Colorado, of all places. And the idea is, kind of goes off the BARF group in the Bay Area, Let's build, because if, if we don't build, also for California's economic vitality, you need more construction. Because if you don't have new housing, you'll never, the economy will never continue, never continue. I also want to address this gentleman's question, too. Um, what I'm finding out, too, with your, the millennial generation, too, and buying their first home, sometimes they actually buy with their friends. I, I've actually dealt with a couple of um, non-related partners that went in and purchased a home together. And as Dave Tanner says, you know, y you buy what you can afford first. It's not your palace at first. And just to get into the market, because you, you really don't want to be paying somebody else's mortgage. That's money that you're actually throwing away. So if that's any help or possibility. Uh, good idea. Great, thank you. Next question, please. Hey, my name is uh, Louis Morante. Just would like to amplify the previous uh, questioner's oh, um, interest in uh, rent control. I think that despite uh, your very reasonable and, and informed uh, positions, that there are a lot of people who feel like rent control is a solution to their problem. And if uh, we're not able to provide the right supply to respond to pretty real problems, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they sort of pursue that, that perceived solution. Um, I'm really interested in coming at the problem and solving it in a different way. But uh, one of the only projects that I'm personally really excited about is the 19J project. I'm really concerned about the Greenfield development that's going on in uh, you know South Placer County and a lot of South Sacramento. Um, I don't really want to live in, in that type of a house. Um, and I'm really concerned about what it does to the environment. Um, so I was hoping that you guys could talk a little bit more about, uh, sort of along the, the lines of um, SFEMB, actually, <laughs> Sonia Trous uh, thinks that um, rent control does work. 
Uh, so does as of Bart, and I think that's also the position of the conference in, in uh, Colorado. But um, putting that aside, um, what what can we do here in Sacramento to encourage more projects like 19J and more infill, uh, and, and just more affordable use units um, that maybe were able to to match uh, market price? And I'll take my uh, question sitting down. Thanks. And and I just for those of us who aren't familiar with 19th and J, just a little description of what is notable about that project. Who wants to describe 19th and J, Ben? 19 and J is, uh, is going to be at that intersection in Midtown Sacramento. Uh, it's going to be 11 stories. What makes it unusual, even among the mixed-use projects down here, is it's going to have micro-units, which has not been tried before in Sacramento. It's done a lot in, uh, in the Bay Area. The units will be as small as, I believe, 300 to 400 square feet. Uh, that has a couple purposes. One, the thinking is a lot of folks, especially if you're living on, uh, on an address like 19th and J, you're not home a lot. You are out at work. You are out meeting your friends at the coffee shop or the bar or the restaurant or you're doing something on the American River bike trail or, or, or. So you don't need a lot of living space. The other side of that is that these would be rental units, and because, of course, any factor of rent has to do with the size, that by being smaller, the rents would therefore be equivalent less, thus making them, in theory, more affordable. I don't think there's going to be a problem with renting these units, but we still got to see what happens when it gets built and how it kind of performs in the real world. Uh, but that is going to be an interesting test case for if we will have projects here that match what you see in the Bay Area where, well, we only have so much land, but we have demand. How about we try to go this route and see if we can meet things and make things affordable that way? Are they being pre-sold? I mean, are you seeing uh, uh, the demand for it yet, or is it too early uh, for that to be, to be known? It's, uh, it's going to be rental housing, so it's not pre-sold. Um, in terms of demand, uh, it's an interesting situation. The developers are a uh, baby boomer, Mo Mohana, but then his daughter, Nikki Mohana, who I believe is about 24, 25, and she kind of based a little bit, she was the driving force behind this, she based a little bit on what she'd experienced living in New York and London and knowing a little bit of what folks her age were looking for. So I think at least anecdotally there's a reason to believe that this will be successful. Okay, great. Next question. I'd like to hear a little bit more about what's uh, your projection or what you see in terms of innovation for that market that you mentioned in terms of home buyers that's in the biggest pinch in this particular Sacramento scenario, which is that two hundred to three hundred, three hundred and fifty thousand dollar home. What does that look like? It has to be, you know, a quality home. We're looking at energy efficient. We're looking at possibly a lighter footprint in terms of environmental sustainability because um, that may be the culture of Sacramento. So what is, what is an innovative home that's being built or redeveloped um, in the Sacramento area look like for that type of buyer? And that's not a micro home. Let's say that 300 square foot apartment, that won't work for that young woman's kind of um, ultra urban experience and what she's hoping to bring to Sacramento to solve that niche. I'm talking more about the people who want to live in and it's going to be small, you know, 900 to 1,500 square feet by some real estate standards. But that particular niche, which you've described as a problem, I haven't heard anything about what's being innovative in this area 
to address that market. And it's, it's not a 20-something problem. The buyers go all the way up the scale who are kind of trapped, unable to afford anything in the urban zone that don't want to move an hour out into the green space. Uh, just a, a guess, and, and it's funny, the house you're describing, uh, about 1,400 square feet, uh, priced at about 178 is the house I own. <laughs> it was built in the 60s. Uh, and I think to some extent that illustrates the issue that what you're more likely to see are homes that might date to that era and a savvy investor will come along, upgrade it to get some of those standard features. I mean, we have granite countertops. We didn't ask for them, but we got granite countertops, even though I'm sure those weren't the countertops it had when it was originally built. And I think you'll have an investor who will look at these older stock of homes that don't have the features that a buyer today might want, especially if they're near an urban area, say they're in a neighborhood like South Natomas, Oak Park, West Sacramento, Tahoe Park, some of these closer in neighborhoods where the housing stock is older but is considerably more affordable than in a land park or in East Sacramento or an on the grid. And they'll come in, they will find a way to make those houses, they'll upgrade to get the energy features, to uh, make it um, Alexa ready. Uh, they'll get those things that people are looking for and then they'll put them on the market piecemeal. I don't really know, and, and Mr. Paris could speak to this better, if it is logistically possible to build the kind of house you're describing in an urban area at the price point you're describing. It doesn't have to be a single family home. I'm asking for innovation. Are we looking at modular homes? Are we looking at homes like, uh, I think it's blue, the ones made in the submarine factory? Um, and maybe that price point's too low. Maybe this is a ghost home that many of the people in this room may want to see, but it just isn't going to exist. And that could be your answer. But I'm innovation that's not a micro home and not a mega mansion. What's happening? So that's one of them. To, to reinvent something that already exists. But like you said, I'm not gonna see that price point. Um, so what else is there? It, and yeah, like in terms of building a home from the ground up, innovation and maybe making it more cost effective, those innovations, is there anything in the works or being done? Um, let's start with Tom. They actually have modular, multi-density homes, and I think that that's probably where we're going to be going. Um, but that means you're going to have density. That means you're going to be sharing common walls. Um, but the issue also is land costs. I mean, you can cut your construction costs a lot, and we'll let him talk about that. But the land costs are based upon what the best use of that property is. Lenders basically lend on that, and so... I hate to go back to it, it sounds like a dead horse, but if there's more supply, you bring that cost down. But I think prefabbed and modulars are probably where you're gonna go in about 10 years, because they're very energy efficient. You should check in Sweden, they actually do it. They have a fascinating way that they construct homes. Okay, well, it sounds like um, it's a bit of a ghost, but um, that's your answer, thank you. And I work in Title 24 Part 6 as my, uh, for my career, so. That's background. Did you? Oh, I'd say also let's uh, let's watch storage containers. Um, we have you know the Federalist, and I think there's another storage container, commercial building. But um, I, that's one thing on my radar is to see you know more innovative innovative homes like that show up in the region. And the problem is whenever values rise in real estate, it, 
it's part of it can be construction costs, but it's really the value of land. And so to build something, it's just so expensive in Midtown, and, and it's, it's probably not feasible, but something like that in some other pockets of Sacramento. Um, I know there's a couple storage container, you know, construction groups that have popped up in the region, and so it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. Or um, some innovative ideas of, of, you know, a community of tiny houses. I haven't seen anyone do that yet, but I, I would love to see that sort of dynamic show up. So, okay, so we have two more questions at the mic, and, I, and it just came to mind I, um, that ties into this. I think I remember in the fall reading a story about how Sacramento City Council was going to, starting in 2017, um, issue, I guess, relax, or they were going to say, we're going to relax the regulations for making um, granny flats or turning garages into... Uh, separate standalone places because we have to tackle the issue of affordable housing. So it'll be easier to convert a garage or build a granny flat. Of course, the house that I bought, my parents, I would love to put them in the granny flat in the back of the house. Um, and so my mom, I think, is keeping an eye on that. But I'm just curious, is that, was I reading correctly that the city at least, or maybe the county, is looking at ways to convert existing structures into residential? Um, and if so, what, when will that happen? What do you see coming out of out of that, if anything? Uh, Mike, I'll I'll touch on that one. Um, the the city has actively tried to make the grid and the infrastructure more efficient. We have a lot of inefficiencies. We have a lot of obsolete housing. We have a lot of obsolete zoning. We have vacant commercial spaces that could be easily converted. Um, it's not as easy to do as it sounds like. So that's part of the problem, but they've done, they've made a concerted effort and I give them credit for trying to push those areas and look at ways that they could identify certain properties or certain zones and <clears throat> bypass CEQA requirements so that <clears throat> they can target zones for uh, uh, getting processing and regulatory approvals done for this whole block of the city or this part of the grid. Um, I think maybe to address the, the lady's question earlier about innovation, housing and, and homes start with land, and the values capitalize into the land, so you can't forget about the cost of land. And at the end of the day, the person building the home has to make a reasonable profit, otherwise there's no incentive to do that. And unfortunately, innovation is going to follow that, and it has a lot to do with the capitalization of the land the infrastructure to just get to the point where you can actually build a home on it or whatever that, that land use decision ends up being. To maybe draw one perspective on part of the problem, there's an imbalance between the land use and the land cost to develop, and it's pretty significant. And when you get in an older infrastructure like Sacramento, it could be almost onerous. You can't even make it work at all. For example, um, the cost of a building permit, forget about the entitlement cost, but the cost of just the building permit for a 1,200 square foot home in the city of Sacramento is about $32,000. The cost of a building permit for a 2,400 square foot home, almost twice the size, is about $34,000. So there's a very distinct disadvantage between housing stock, size of home, and land components to it, just to throw that out there. It makes it very challenging. 
Is the city receptive to, in your like, especially now with the new mayor, are they being more receptive to listening to that and changing things like that, or? Well, no, uh, and that's the, that's that's the honest answer. The answer is no. They're not receptive to a reduction because they work on a cost recovery basis on a lot of the permits. Not all the permits, go, the uh, fees go to the city. What they are trying to do, and actually I've been very actively involved in this, is trying to get the city to help defer or create some deferral programs so that the capital up front is deferred to when the home is actually occupied. Impact fees are not impact until somebody creates the impact. And as it is now, we have to front those costs. And it is, it is a deterrent on trying to get more homes built and, and that stock out of the ground. Next question. Yeah, hi. Um, there was a lot of discussion earlier on about how you almost have to have all cash to get into contract. Um, what does that say about our current financing system for buying homes when you have to have $300,000 to buy a house? Uh, additionally, I was wondering about, from the perspective of a builder, Mr. Paris, uh, the creamery. I love it. It's beautiful. The homes are magnificent. They're expensive. Um, they're worth every dollar, no doubt. But how as a developer do you decide how dense to build um, and how big each unit is going to be and what conditions would encourage you to build more densely? And thirdly, the 19th and J development had no opposition. Okay, the planning, I mean, I saw the planning commission and they said, bring us more projects just like this. If that was the first in, in decades, why aren't builders um, offering more of those proposals? Okay, so we're looking at all cash, could it, is that being prevalent now? Um, um, density and how that- I knew you were gonna hate me on this question. <laughs> I'll repeat <laughs> my questions. I, I know, okay. I stuck three in there. So the first one has to, has to do with the, the all cash offers. And it really does feel like, um, unless you have that cash, you're not gonna get into contract. What does that say about our financing system? We have, for decades now, the government, uh, and private institutions have put together a system for people to buy homes, get financing, and it doesn't seem to be working, at least in this market. Yeah, and, I, and I'm going to tie that into um, one of the blog posts that Ryan wrote about trends for 2017. I think one thing I saw was there may be a rise in creative lending, more creative lending. So uh, does that tie into all cash, or what are you going to see in terms of lending? Okay, so first, um, first some perspective uh, for about... 13 to 15% of all sales um, in Sacramento County were all cash last year. So it used to be at the top, it was about 36% in 2013. A lot of cash, over one in three sales. It's really minor now, it's not driving the market, that is a very normal level. But 25% of every single sale in Sacramento County were FHA loans. And so what that is, that's a type of loan that requires 3.5% down but there's even down payment assistance if that buyer does not have the, um, the capability of coming up with that down payment. So I do think that there's proof in the market where there are financing options available. Right, but I'm concerned because it sounds like the, uh, if, if you want a house that's a good value, um, as Ms. Ling was saying, uh, then you have to have all cash. Then you're competing. If, if, if you want a good fixer-upper to get into the market, you, get, you, have, you, you need all cash to, uh, it sounds like, uh, please. Bling. 
That's a great concern. Actually, you know, I want to qualify that, that statement I made because uh, the investor world's a little different than an owner-occupied uh, property. And many times when um, you're a first-time home buyer and you're looking at purchasing a property and you have really solid financing, good credit, what I always suggest to the buyer is that you write a letter, a personal letter, because a lot of sellers these days, especially uh, sellers that have owned the home for some time, have kind of a little soft spot in their heart, and they look at, at sometimes the multiple offers, and they consider uh, a, a person who's gone a great effort to qualify for financing and present themselves in the best light as someone that's going to really take care of their home. There's kind of a sentiment relationship that kind of goes on in the transfer of their property. I don't, it's almost magical because <laughs> I've, I've dealt that a lot with first-time home buyers is that I always um, prepare them in the, in the best light to, to, to present their offer. And no, you don't always need cash. Um, I have investors that usually buy homes that are basically falling down and they pay cash for it. And so I just really want to kind of separate that out. You know, I have some investors that that's all they buy when they buy property, they buy all cash, you know. Um, and they're usually multiplexes or um, really, uh, really <laughs> dilapidated fixers. And, you know, my, my suggestion too, as a first time home buyer, you, if you're really going to get financing, it's almost impossible to get financing if you're looking at fixers too. And Ryan can kind of qualify this too, because a lot of the FHA and some of the um, lower down payment uh, assistance programs, they, they want a house that's in pretty good shape. So, um, so you're in a good position if you, you know, really work with the right um, tools that a professional can help you with. Okay, does that help answer your question? And I, I want to be mindful of time because we're coming up on like a 10 to 8. So, okay, so we'll just take one of the three questions and then, because I, unless you, I know you had three, but either well, you can do one of it. I mean, if folks would like to hear from a builder, from a builder how you decide how densely to build, that, I think that might be interesting for the conversation. You want to take that one, Mike? Well, it's, it, it's very um, specific to the location in a lot of respects. It has, in some times, uh, uh, not even anything to do with the zoning or the potential for it. Uh, since you brought up the Kareemi, what actually happened over that project was there were several projects over the last 10 years that failed that came to the board that this never got out of the ground for a lot of different reasons, economics or whatever. Uh, in the case of what we have out there now, where we ended up with our density was a function of infrastructure capacity, because we had to work within the current infrastructure and two had a lot to do with some of the larger specific plans of the city with regards to roadways and how they want to traffic to route through those areas. So we had to be mindful of not just our project, but it was the entire area down there. So that dictated a lot of where we ended up. From a uh, technical perspective, we're actually at 16.8 units to the acre, which on single family detached is pretty dense. All right, next question. Um, Hi, my name's Kelly, and um, I've been in the service industry pretty much my whole time in Sacramento, so it sounds like the housing market and the service industry have the same problems of shortage of people, but um, that's beyond the point of, it just seems that like there's a lot of this happening across the state. Um, 
But my question is, I think the reason people are attracted to Sacramento is not just the affordability, but the uniqueness of it that you definitely don't find in the Bay Area except for very small pockets. And um, with building here now, is that taken into consideration when plans are put forth? Um, since I know that that's when people come here, they're kind of blown away how like great Sacramento looks, really. It's different neighborhoods have different characteristics and stuff. So is that something that's taken into consideration? Yeah, and I guess is that a, um, uh, a, a per, an asset, I guess, when you are creating the homes, putting on the market, the uniqueness of Sacramento being built into the homes or cookie cutter just, you know, works? I know that's a loaded question, but how do you take that into perspective, Michael? Not, not everybody wants to live in tract homes anymore. People want uniqueness. Um, and, and I asked for yeah, about you yeah. and also all yeah. other homeowners that you see, because I know you have a unique take on home building, but in terms of the, your peers, do they take that into perspective? Um, I don't know if my peers in in, uh, in in the industry probably follow it like I probably do. I think part of it is just because that's the direction that I build our company around and our brand and where we're looking to fill that niche. I think going back to my analogy or, or my example of the Kareem where you have the buyer that's 56, I heard a great example. When our first buyer is in there, I asked them, why are you buying here? Because they're moving from a gated community in Stockton in the suburban sections of Stockton, in a very high-end neighborhood down there, to downtown Sacramento. And his response was, I want a home that my son can't move back into. <laughs> and it, there was some truth to that, because they're really looking for, there's, a, there's a, a large population that I call a quiet buyer. They weren't going to buy until they found exactly what they wanted. And when they found it, and our project just happened to have the housing style and design and whatever it is that that demographic is looking for. And it's starting to come true as a trend down there. Uh, it, it's not to say that that's what's the only thing that's gonna be available, but the choices that people have are changing and I think that's something you gotta pay attention to as you look at new projects, new density factors, and the style and design of how those homes have to live. I guess we will go for full circle with the first question coming and the last question coming from the same person. Well, since I this is my second question, is I want to open it up. Well, I, okay. Right, well, I have fi uh, final issues. This one is actually should be really easy, uh, and this speaks to our, our friends who are speaking about rent rent control. Um, we talked about supply. Supply is the answer. I'm with you. I'm right there. Important question for some you know for someone who's only been around and has only ever seen rents decrease when the market tanks. You know, when, when, the, when the bubble bursts, when, the, when the, the market collapses, that's the only time in my life, my, my short life, I've seen rents go down. You guys are the expert. When do you see rents go down when, there's not, when, the, when the bubble's not bursting, when, when there's not market failure? Because I don't want to have to wait until the next crash. That's just bad news for everybody. <laughs> Um, actually, rents are going down in the Bay Area right now. San Francisco rents have dropped about four to five percent in the city of San Francisco, and they're drop. Yeah, I know, <laughs> pretty amazing, huh? And the reason for it is oversupply. Um, I mean, they are now calling the the bird of San Francisco is the crane because there's so many cranes out. But yeah, rents have actually dropped almost five percent in the last quarter. 
But candidly, they were yeah. They were so high. They were so high that, you know, very, very tough. But rents are but rents are actually coming down. Actually in parts of Palo Alto, they are coming down. Burlingame, San Mateo, they're also coming down. Uh, and I, uh, before I ask my last question, does anyone want to add to that? I actually have a follow-up question. It's also, I, I know I'm playing off other people's questions, but, and obviously there's no magic bullet solution to more supply, um, but especially to give our, uh, our builder a chance to, to, you know, to come back. You know, we've hit you pretty hard tonight. I, I, we, I apologize. Um, you talked about a shortage of labor. Uh, you characterize it actually as a shortage in trade. You know, this is, this is highly skilled labor. And you know anyone who says that construction is you know an industry that you just walk into they they have they have no idea, um, and uh, Ben also characterizes a shortage of labor. But where did it go? I, I mean the 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 housing boom that happened before two thousand six that led up to that that must have required a massive amount of labor. What happened to all these people? Did never mention Mexico. And they Mike? moved to Texas and in other Texas. areas. They, they vacated the industry. And the, what, what we're missing is that there's been a lack of trade formation back into it. So the, the, we, we just don't have another plumber to call. So you would characterize then yeah. the, the barrier to entry is, to, to entering into the construction trade, what's the, what's the barrier to entry? There? Obviously there's no magic bullet. Yeah. And, and to, to frame this, I work for the jobs committee. For, for the state assembly. Right. <laughs> so this is a big deal. Uh, and are there efforts to build up the construction industry trade, uh, apprenticeships or anything that's in the works to get that back up to normal levels? It, it, there are, and it, it's, um, it's, it's a challenge though because what's happened is other industry has also been evolving and developing. A lot of that labor that you would see on a, a trade-based crew has shifted to just completely different industries right now. Uh, California's a little unique because of our reliance on Hispanic integration and things like that coming through, and that also has uh, seen some movement out of it. And, and maybe a real-life example is, is a lot of the oil exploration and the things you've been reading about in the Midwest and North Dakota actually took a lot of labor out of the West Coast, period, and it didn't come back. So we have trades that are actively trying to uh, help uh, recruit and develop uh, trade programs, but it takes a while to get that through the pipeline. So I'm going to end with the last question for all of you, kind of like a crystal ball question. If we had this uh, panel a year from now, January 31st, 2018, I guess what would you, is there any prediction in terms of what would be new or notable happening in 2017? Like I would really like to ask Ryan about the marijuana, the prediction he has about marijuana affecting the housing market. But I guess I want to start, I'm going to start with uh, Dave. I guess like a crystal ball prediction about something that's going to happen in 2017 that's going to impact sellers, buyers, renters, who well, regard whoever. There's a couple things that are uncertainties and one of them is what's going to happen with uh, financing. They're talking about financing going up uh, probably 1% over the next year. Uh, if it goes up any more than that, that can have a significant impact on affordability of housing for people starting up. Uh, you know, it always seems, I started off in 1978 
uh, interest rates were at seven and a half to eight percent, so it just seems to me that four percent is pretty good financing, but when you're trying to qualify, uh, it makes it very difficult. So I think probably the biggest unknown, uh, the potential uh, negative impact on the market over the next year would be the uh, changes in interest rate, driven in large part by what the Fed does. Ben? I would think a year from now we'll be looking back and seeing that we had the busiest construction year uh, since the boom. And at the same time, we'd also be talking about, well, we're probably starting to look now toward a recession, just because economic cycles inevitably peter out and Though Sacramento isn't necessarily there as a whole, uh, nationally, our economy is probably in the later stages of a growth cycle that can't, can't, can't last forever. Ryan. Yeah, and on that note, markets do go up and go down. They don't go up forever. And we like to talk about real estate as it's its ever-increasing commodity. Um, she mentioned marijuana, so I'll mention that briefly. Um, no matter what you think about the subject, it's definitely a trend to watch. In 2017, the state is going to come up with all of their laws, and it, it'll. I find that residential property owners, this guy, you know, I talked to recently, he's like, "Man, I'm gonna sell my quarter acre lot, you know, in this particular area to uh, to a marijuana grower." And then I, I was thinking, "Well, you, no, you're probably not, um, because it's not allowed there." Um, but it's. Um, <laughs> But really in the commercial sector and in the agricultural sector in the Cape Hay Valley, 10 acres plus, um, you know, cannabis cultivation is going to be a big deal for our area. Um, a few weeks back, there was um, a panel that, that met with California Groundbreakers. If you have not listened to that discussion, it's fascinating. I know a council member said that in the six-county area surrounding Sacramento that there's going to be about 20,000 um, cannabis-related jobs. And so when you think about, you know, any other um, economic engine, as he said, you know, what, what else is coming to our region? And so that's not me advocating for it, but it's just me saying this is a trend to watch. Ling? I would also say, agree with all three of these people, <laughs> make it easy. Uh, the financing really kind of dictates the, the real estate market. Uh, it's up and down cycles. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's also our leadership in the, uh, it's so unpredictable and things seem so volatile, at least in my personal opinion, that I, I'm afraid to predict, <laughs> truthfully. So. I think housing becomes a more important issue for California's economic vitality. I think people are just going to recognize that without the housing, California can't continue to grow. Mike? Uh, it, it's, it's what the Fed does with our monetary policy. I think it's going to dictate so much. And it, it, it breaches past housing. It, it's all the service and the insurance industries that are contingent on those that are going to be impacted by it. Well, I hope. You're not all depressed. <laughs> uh, it's going to be interesting. So uh, again, this is the first of four panels because there's so much to cover. And I think housing will be important going forward. It will be interesting to see what happens this year. So thanks again to the panelists for your great conversation. Thanks to you for your great questions. Have a good night. Podcast will be out in a couple of days so that others can listen to. So, But again, wine, beer to start it. <laughs>